RingCentral are the leading cloud communications and collaboration solution for today's workforce. RingCentral integrates your team messaging, video meetings and business phone into one application, so your team can do more together from anywhere. For a free trial, visit ringcentral.com.au. RingCentral, communications reimagined. Welcome to the Employees Matter podcast where we bring you the latest information to help business owners, entrepreneurs and managers manage their team through COVID-19 and beyond. Listen in as we share leading edge information with experts across a variety of fields, from HR to legal, to negotiation to mental health and so much more to help you not just survive, but thrive through the pandemic. And now here's your host, Natasha Hawker. Darren Murphy is the Managing Director of Core Integrity, a specialist integrity risk consulting firm that works with corporate, government and professional sporting organisations to help protect their people, reputation and bottom line. Beginning his career in the New South Wales Police Force, Darren ignited a passion for solving complex fraud matters across his 13 years of duty, including time specialising as a detective in the fraud squad. Darren is highly regarded for his work on developing safe speak-up cultures and supporting organisations through times of trouble. Darren's experience, leadership and passion has contributed to Core Integrity's industry-leading reputation and I know you're going to get a lot from this chat today. One of the themes that we're seeing being played out as a result of COVID is mental health and domestic and family violence. But something else has been happening in the background as well to business. And COVID has exacerbated the issue. And this is around employee fraud. I am very pleased to introduce you to Darren Murphy, who is the founder and CEO of Core Integrity. Welcome, Darren. Thanks for having me, Natasha. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. And I think uh, this is a fascinating topic. Um, And I think a lot of people are going to be interested, surprised, and probably take action. But anyway, we'll see what happens. So let's talk about this. We're going to, I think it's referred to as employee theft. Um, And I know that this happens way more than people think it does. And it goes largely unreported. I expect that a lot of business owners and managers might be checking their bank accounts a little bit more carefully after listening to this. But before we get into all of that, how did you end up where you are today? That is a good question. Um, I left high school and for some unknown reason, I decided to join the New South Wales Police Force. Never thought about it in my life. Don't know where it came from. It was a harebrained idea at the time. And uh, as my mother said at the time, when my father was trying to talk her down off a ledge, she, he said <laughs> to her, he said, don't worry, he'll only last two minutes in there. Um I joined the police. I thought I'd do three years and become a stockbroker. So I was 19. I thought I'd be out by 22. Yeah. Lo and behold, I did 13 years. Wow. And you sort of ended up in stockbroking in a roundabout way. That, that'll become apparent, you know, as, as sure. you're chatting. <laughs> so um, what made you start your business, Core Integrity? Well, after I left the police, um, I gravitated back towards this line of work. I'd spent time in the police as a detective for about 10 years, uh, worked in the fraud squad for a number of years, and I just took a liking to this whole notion that you're calling is employee fraud. Commonly, we just call it internal fraud. Mm -hmm. And um, I really just like that whole psyche of good people that do the wrong thing. 
Mm. Um, and unlike, you know, traditional criminals, fraudsters are people who are like you and I, mm. and through things that we'll discuss in, you know, in this mm. dis discussion, they go bad. So I sort of had an interest in that. And then I was very fortunate to get a job at Commonwealth Bank, where I worked there for around six or seven years. And I was in charge of the investigations team for a good portion of that time. So that led me on to then thinking, right, I want to take this to the next level now. And really, it's driven by a purpose of just wanting to help organizations do the right thing and really to combat those, you know, in fraud and misconduct things that are happening. And which particularly now that we're seeing through the Me Too movement mm. and all the other things going on, you know, just conduct as, as a topic is a hot topic. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the interesting things is, and again, we'll come to this in more detail, but how unreported it is. And I think this has been going on since the dawn of time. It's just we didn't really know about it. So let's get into specifics. What type of work do you do? So when we get into the meat and potatoes of it, mm -hmm. we do a few things. But one of the main things we do is we implement and design whistleblower programs for organizations. And that's a topic that we're really passionate about. And really it's around something you just touched on, which is we want to help organizations create safe speak up culture. So when you look at all these issues we're hearing about today, they're because at some point in time, someone didn't feel safe to report that issue when it occurred. Um, so that's one thing we do. So we, we work with you know, companies of all sizes to help them create those safe speak up cultures. And then on the backside of that, we do a lot of investigations. So looking at a fraud, corruption and employee misconduct things. Mm -hmm. And then a whole smattering of other services, uh, you know, training for those kind of things, building capability with leaders and managers and organizations to understand obligations around whistleblowing, to understand what fraud looks like and how to detect it, those kind of things. Because I think that the training has largely not happened in that space. If I think back, because my career started in banking and finance, and I think towards the end where I did some gigs, you know, even as a contractor, we'd occasionally get a little bit of online training, you know, yeah. what's fraud and, and why is it important and what should, signs should you look after. But when my career started back in the late 80s, I hate to say, I don't remember <laughs> any training about fraud. And we were dealing with millions of dollars. Literally, I was working in dealing rooms where we were trading millions of dollars of fixed interest and um, semi-government bonds. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right about the training. I mean, one thing I've noticed uh, in the last few years is, um, you know, LMS systems or online learning, they've been all the rage for ages, right? And they're a good cost equation for companies. But I've noticed, uh, particularly in the last 12 months, but even a little bit longer, that there's a bit of a slow trend coming back to the importance of face-to-face -face training. Oh. And, and I'm a big proponent of that as well. And I can talk a bit about some of the training we do in a moment. Mm. But um, I think it's a real balance for organisations. Like at the big end of town, um, it's more common for them to do training, right? But if you're a Commonwealth Bank, for example, and you've got 52,000 people, very, very hard to deploy training to 52,000 people. So that's why online has a big play, a big role to play there. But then when you're a smaller organization, you know, it's a lot easier to deploy training. But I think you're right. It's, it's training is largely not utilized to the extent it should be. Mm. So what do you love about what you do and what frustrates you? So as cliched as it sounds, I really love it when we're called upon by a client to come in and help them in the middle of a crisis or a situation. You know, we can get in there alongside of them. We don't have the emotional connection to what they're going through, but we can provide them that sort of help and guidance in what are sometimes complex and, you know, sensitive situations. And just really being that sort of, you know, sounding board to give them some advice and some direction and help them respond. So I love that part. Mm. Um, but the part that I really get frustrated about is when 
you know, organizations think it's more expensive and more difficult than it really is to mm. either do the right thing in terms of responding to an issue, or they don't take the measures and steps they need to, to actually prevent um, things from happening in their business. That really frustrates me. I mean, it's the old adage of you ask for $10,000 to do something proactively and they say no, but then when a crisis happens, they can happily find $300,000 to respond. Yeah, to investigate. Now we're gonna, we're gonna get into that in more detail, but I do wanna just quickly go back and reflect. What did you learn about yourself um, in the police force and what have you learned about yourself as a business owner? Well, they're good questions. Um, I, so back to why I joined the police, I still don't know why I joined and I don't believe in karma and fate and all those kind of things, but I learned that I have a strong justice driver mm-hmm. and um, I'm not a big, tough, burly guy, but I've found that I've got quite a strong personality. I'm quite resilient. So it's like, you know, the, the moon's aligned to draw me into a role where I could, you know, be that guiding light or help people out in a crisis. That's what I learned through my time in the police, particularly, which is mm. I'm cool and calm and collected in a crisis. Um, and I can help people make some good decisions. The person you want around. What about as a business owner? Because it's completely different in some Well, way. yeah, it is. So I've always had an entrepreneurial flair, you know, like like most people. I started a lemonade stand when I was seven and, yeah. you know, I started a, and failed a few businesses along the way. So I've always wanted to be in business. Um you know, but the challenge for all business people is it's one thing to be good as a technician and to do the doing, whether you're a lawyer, an investigator, a HR mm. person, it's a different kettle of fish to be an entrepreneur or a business owner and, and particularly to be a leader mm. and to set the right tone, which we'll talk about and run an organization and think strategically and tactically. So that's been a big area of growth for me in the last you know, five years. Mm. I, I think that's one of the things I love about being a business owner. And I say from a HR perspective, you know, when people say, oh, I'd like to work with you. And I go, actually, you really don't. Because I talk about HR up at this level now. I'm much more broader. My team are infinitely better at, at this than I am now. So it's really interesting. And I love the breadth of business and, and building something that's growing and evolving. So well, that's, that's actually a really good point. Like that's the thing that drives me is I like building and creating and, and those kind of things and helping. Um, I actually get a bit bored doing the doing. Um, yeah. But the beauty of that is if you're smart about it and you, you know, you grow and evolve, there are far smarter people around than me. And I surround myself with people who are really good technicians and do the doing and have far better attention to detail than I have. But I'm better at sort of managing and creating and providing strategic direction and advice. Let's talk about statistics. What are the types of internal fraud, if I'm to use your language, or employee theft, which is, I think, about how some small to medium businesses think about it? Yeah, sure. So there's, uh, you know, at a broad level, the, the, there's asset misappropriation, which is the most common one, right? So I know everyone loves loves statistics and I'll uh, use a few facts and figures throughout this chat as well. But, you know, the most common type of fraud committed by an employee is asset misappropriation. So that's things like stealing cash, um, misappropriating resources of the business, stealing stock, um, all those kind of things, you know, the really hands-on things that you can do in a business to do the wrong thing. Um, but funnily enough, even though it's the most common one, it actually has the lowest loss amount on average, mm. right? So if you think about you working in a store or a retail outfit, you know, you can't steal necessarily $4 million worth of stock, right? No. That's pretty hard. Um, next one's corruption. So they're yeah. schemes between internal and external parties where, you know, bribery, corruption, conflict of interest with suppliers, those kind of things. Um, that's a really common one. And um, funnily enough, that sort of sits in the mid-range around how frequently it occurs, but also the losses, okay? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it requires a degree of sophistication and cooperation with multiple people, yeah. just like running a conspiracy to 
be a drug dealer or something else. You need a whole bunch of people motivated to do the wrong thing and to mm. keep their mouth shut. Yeah. Uh, and then at the pointy end is, and it's the least common, but it's the most impactful in terms of its dollar loss, is financial statement fraud. So What's that's where that? people, yeah, so that's where people are involved in um, falsifying financial records, particularly if you look at like, you know, you remember back in the old days, Enron, yes. you know, falsifying, you know, sales, um, minimizing losses, committing financial statement fraud against shareholders in the stock market at the really big end. Um, mm. But even just committing fraud where you're hiding losses, creating fake invoices and all those kind of things to, to present a better picture than what's really going on. Wow. And yeah. And, and it occurs to me with that, that last one in particular, you need a bit of nows to be able to do that. You know, there's a little bit of skill, uh, I imagine, to be able to do that effectively. 100%. And you make a really good point, which is there's a correlation between the people that get involved in financial statement fraud are often more senior employees. Mm. And that's by virtue of either the nows, as you mentioned, or mm. their role where they're actually a financial controller, a CFO, a CEO. So you're, you're spot on. It's very hard for an average lower level employee, particularly if they're working at a cash register or in a back end warehouse, to then dream up a financial statement scheme and mm. defraud share, and shareholders. Pull it off. That's right. Yeah. Wow. And to, is there any sort of time frames that these are normally going for? We've talked about the three types before they get caught out or something goes wrong. Is there sort of a standard length of crime spree? Uh, look, yeah, it varies, but the, uh, there's a global body called the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, and they do a report every two years called the Report to the Nations, and they've got really, really good data, and they've been doing it since about 2008. And what's um, they, they track, and I think they've surveyed, like, you know, on average about 2,500 organisations every year, and that talks about everything around the kinds of internal fraud, how long, how much, what are the red flags, all that stuff. So in terms of the duration, the current average for an internal fraud is around 14 months, before it's detected, according wow. to those statistics. Obviously, that'll vary business to business and, you know, a lot of factors go into that. Um, interestingly, it's come down in the last sort of four years mm. from about 18 months, 20 months down to 14 months. Is that because our systems are getting more clever or...? Good question. So you, you, you're right on the money. So I think it's a range of things, right? It's improved uh, internal controls in certain yeah. organisations. Uh, increased community expectations around, you know, what is acceptable or not acceptable conduct and then mm. reporting those things and creating safe speak up environments. If you look in the Australian context, there's been new whistleblower legislation come mm. out in the last couple of years. So that's probably giving rise to people feeling more confident to speak up and report issues. So all these factors come together um, to be able to drive that number down. And, and the stats show that it is coming down. So um, we're going to go into whistleblowers a bit later, but tell me what co what impact is COVID having? Uh, so it is definitely having an impact. Fraud's on the rise, particularly employee fraud. Um, also externally, I know we're not talking about that, but things like you know cyber scams and mm. business email compromises. Fraud is on the rise, and and at its simplest level, it's because it's driven by people being under financial duress, mm. people losing their jobs, uh, organisations losing customers, um, and all those pressures come together where there's more people looking to take advantage of the system, um, and even you know the ACFE who I mentioned before quite smartly responded very quickly during COVID last year and they did a range of quick surveys throughout the year. I think they did one in May, then one in September, one in December and um, 
consistently throughout the whole year, they showed that all their respondents are seeing an increase of fraud in 2020. So it went up to about 79% of respondents had seen fraud Mm. and about 95 are predicting that trend will increase in 2021. Oh, so if you think it was over, it isn't. So how frequent is it? You know, is it every business that's going to experience it? What are the stats around that? I think it's a lot more frequent than people really give credit to it. But then understanding whether it's happening to you comes down to a whole lot of factors around the maturity of your business and your processes, right? So for very small businesses, they just don't have controls in place. They don't really have any training. They don't know necessarily what's going on. And for those organizations, they may not even know they've been a victim of a fraud. No. Right. Then you've got the large end of town where, you know, they'll become aware, but by that time, it's already several hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. So it's more prevalent than you might think. Um, some of the global stats, they estimate that on average, organizations lose around 5% of their revenue through fraud. Wow. That's a lot. Yep. Yep. That is a lot. Imagine what that would do to your profit line. Uh, and look, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me when you say that. When I think about, you know, we've been in business coming up for 10 years this year. And we've had a number of clients who have admitted to me over the years that they have experienced employee fraud. One particular case I remember, uh, it was sadly, it was, you know, a small business owner growing rapidly. Her friend was running payroll. Her friend was mm-hmm. siphoning off the payroll. Two yep. children of $1.8 million. And, and she just never saw it coming. They were part of the same sort of ethnic community. So there was complications around that and they were best yep. buddies and, um, but was never reported to the police. No, that's a, So you asked me earlier what frustrates me. That really frustrates me. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, we can talk forever about why, but, you know, and I, the, the number one reason why people don't report things to the police is because they're worried about the, the brand and reputation back to their business, right? Mm-hmm. But, and I know we're a bit off topic here, but then the, the problem with that is you're kicking the can down the road for another day. So if you don't take action on that and report it, um, as we know, lots of people rely on things like background screening checks or mm-hmm. employment checks. Now, if mm-hmm. I don't have a criminal record because I stole $400,000 and you didn't report me to the police, then when I go to apply for my next job, what's going to happen with my employment up? check? I'm going to be fine. And, you know, particularly in banking and whatnot, they've done a lot of work in the last, you know, five to 10 years to really strengthen the way they take action on fraud and report it to the police. ASIC's taken a keen interest in that, and it's really come along leaps and bounds. But you go back to small businesses or medium businesses, um, they don't want the reputational hit on the first instance, but they also don't have the capability and the resources to progress a police investigation because that means you've got to do an internal investigation first. You potentially then got to have lawyers involved to help you with any litigation. Yep. And it's a costly exercise. Yeah. And look, they can have a long tail, right? Like I've got yeah. matters going at court that go back five, six years. Wow. Right? So I can understand as a small business, you think, I just don't need the headaches. I just but want the to prob- move on. That's right. But the problem is you're just kicking that can down the road for another poor small business or another medium business to have the same issue happen to them. Um, and it's a toxic mix for small businesses because you've got low levels of capability. You need every dollar you're making. And then when a fraud, like you just mentioned, of $1.2 million, that can mm. knock you out. Yeah, That's, it, that can be game over. Exactly. And so uh, uh, back on the individual that does it, are they typically re-offenders? Is it, is it like that, that there is a it's more likely that they're going to re-offend than not re-offend? It's a hard one, right? So I think fraudsters from a profile perspective are very different to other criminals or other mm, people that commit crime. That's what crime. I'm thinking. Um, have you heard of the fraud triangle before? No. Tell us about that. Ah, 
Okay, so the fraud triangle is one of my favorite things. I didn't invent it. It's been around for 40 or 50 years by a guy called Donald Creasy. Um, but basically, it's a triangle, and it says that there's three legs to the triangle, and when those things come together, that's when someone's more likely to commit fraud. Um, so the first one is having a pressure in their life. Mm-hmm. So we think about financial pressures, you lose your job, relationship breakdown, whatever the case may be, keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. So you've got a, you've got a pressure or, a, or, a, or an issue in your life that you've got to deal with. Next one is opportunity. You need to have the opportunity to actually commit the fraud. So you and mm-hmm. I talked earlier about whether, you know, a low level warehouse person can actually commit a financial statement fraud. Probably not. He doesn't mm-hmm. have the opportunity. However, if you're Sally working in accounts, you may have the opportunity. So now you've mm-hmm. got the pressure in your life. Husband loses a job. You're trying to keep up with the Joneses and go on fancy holidays or whatever the case may be. You've now got opportunity where by virtue of your role, you can actually do things in your role. Mm-hmm. And then the last leg is justification or rationalization. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the last secret source that comes together where you rationalize your conduct. And the kind of things that people mm-hmm. do to rationalize their conduct is they say things like, I deserve it. Yeah. I looked over for promotion. The company owes me. Uh, things like, I'll just take it this once and I'll pay it back. Yeah. All those kind of things come together and create this perfect storm where mm. your average person who is not really a criminal in terms of our everyday stereotype now becomes a fraudster. Mm. So but- let's talk about the typical profile of that internal fraudster. What I have heard some statistics, so I'm going to be interested to see whether you say the same thing. But what does the typical profile of an employee thief or fraudster look like? Well, let's let's start off with this one. Who do you think commits more fraud internally, male or females? All right. I'm going to go male. Yep. And why? Uh, more financial pressure, more opportunity, and there's probably the rationalisation to use your triangle there. Oh, you're good. I tell you. Yeah. So you're definitely right. 72% of uh, fraud offences internally are committed by males. So 28% by females. The median loss for those males, what do you, do you think it's higher or lower? Uh, I think it's probably higher. It is higher. So men, men commit more fraud and when they do do it, they do it bigger. And, <laughs> That's a like gambling <laughs> instinct. <laughs> it's, the, it's the gambling. It's the risk-taking. It's yeah, the it's keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, men are typically right. a higher risk profile as a generalisation than females. Yeah. yeah, I had heard that your highest risk role is your, and sorry for all those finance managers and CFOs out there, but it's typically a male between about 35 and 45 who's a CFO or a finance manager. Yeah, you're not, you're not wrong. So the older the employee, there's a couple other factors that come into play here, right? So you've got mm-hmm. male and female, you've mm-hmm. got the risk profile of the individuals and all those things happening in their life, right? But also additionally is their role that they play in the organisation and tenure. So mm-hmm. the older the employee, 55 plus is the, is the category of people that, males that commit the most amount of fraud losses ah. right now that comes back to things like they've been around longer they know what they're doing um or trusted. Pretend, yep they're trusted uh they've got higher levels of delegated authority right mm. so a 55 year old who might be an executive general manager at the bank could have five hundred thousand dollars delegated authority whereas a manager has ten thousand mm. okay um and they're also in roles where they can actually perpetrate the fraud Mm. Okay. And then tenure is another one. So the longer you've been with an organization, the more you know what the ins and outs are of the processes. How to work the system. That's right. Mm, That's fascinating. So that's, I mean, there's no, there's no set profile, but there's some of the statistics and factors that come into play where you go, okay, if I've got someone in the role for a longer period of time, and that's why organizations talk about rotating people out of roles. Yep. Um, that's all we're having controls like segregation of duties, reviewing delegated authority, all those good things. It's to 
combat those issues around. Right. So let's just define those two because I know what delegated authority is, but give me a definition of delegated authority and an example of segregation of duties. Okay, so I'm not a finance person, but in, in yeah. plain terms, it's mm-hmm. where uh, when we're talking about the delegated authority, it's what level of financial authority I have to sign off on expenses, invoices, and other things. So particularly in big corporate, based on roles, they will have various levels. So you know, you might be a senior manager and have a $10,000 limit, which means when it goes over that, you're not able to process it through the, the SAP system or whatever system they're using. Uh, and it has to have a manager go to the next level. And that goes all the way through to a CEO level. And the CEO could have an unlimited de- delegation. He or she might have a million dollars. Hmm. It just varies on the organization, their risk profile and the parameters they put in place. But that's what delegated authority means. And the other one was um, what we talked about then? The segregation. What was the other one we talked about? Segregation of Ah, right. So, mm. Yeah, so that's that that's an internal control mechanism where what you do is you make sure that the person initiating a payment, for example, can't be also the person approving the payment. Mm. Mm. Now, right. in small to medium businesses, that just you know, oh, we, we all how many initiate times and have we been given, you know, the company the boss's credit card to go and buy lunch for people that you know that's right. So how is crime like this facilitated? Oh, wow, that's a hard question. Um, do you want me to give away all the secrets so people listening can then no, go commit fraud? that's probably not a good idea, is it, Karen? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think in its simplest terms, you know, we've touched on it before, mm. but if you've got poor internal controls, and I'm really now speaking to small to medium enterprises, right, it's, mm. we, we, we never preach to them and say you've got to have all the controls of a big bank or a BHP or something like that. That's not realistic, right? But mm. there is a range of things you can do. But in terms of how people commit those frauds or that internal fraud, it, it's as simple as things like, you know, creating, uh, creating false invoices, mm. right, manipulating documents, um, intercepting emails, and changing things. So common fraud schemes by an employer, things like ghost employees, ghost suppliers. Supplier fraud is a big one around creating fake supplier invoices or receiving an invoice from a supplier and manipulating the BSB and account details. This is probably one of the most common things that an average person can do quite easily. You receive the, the email with the invoice, you go to Adobe, you edit the PDF, and I change the supplier's bank account for my bank account. If you've got no internal controls and checks and balances, that then goes to a finance person. He or she approves it. The money leaves and goes to the other account. Mm. Until somebody That's... rings up and goes, why wasn't I paid? They go, yes, yes were, which might be 14 months too late, depending on how quickly they paid people. That's right. You, you mentioned um, one of your clients earlier had the payroll fraud. That's mm. another massive one, right, where they call ghost employees. So things like not... Um, not taking someone off the system who left the organization in the last three to six months, leaving Darren Murphy's name on there wow. and then updating his bank account details and directing it to my bank. Wow. Yeah. God, that would not be good. I don't want to give too many ideas away. No, though. we won't do that. <laughs> um, so we touched on a little bit before, but is there anything else you wanted to add? You said that typically it can be up to 5% of revenue can be lost in sort of the costs of this if we think about what it costs to get right and again if we focus on that small to medium businesses versus the potential loss I'm always talking about ROI on employees mm. what do you think what's realistic for them what do they need to do in terms of cost and setup to protect themselves against what could potentially be a much bigger thing 
Yeah, so look, I think it's going to vary for every business, right, based on the industry and their their budget. But there's a couple of things that I'd leave with them that they could think about, and they're not as expensive as they might think. So, um, But a very common one is, have they actually assessed the risks to their business? And I know that sounds really basic, but the reality is most small to medium businesses never undertake a risk assessment. Now, Don't have a risk profile. That's right. And I and even in a simple term, sitting around and saying, what are the common risks that happen in our industry or our business? And then how do we feel about our controls? Do we have any? If we have got them, are they adequate? Like simple stuff like that. Mm-hmm. All the way through to obviously having a professional come in and do a fraud risk assessment on a product, on a channel, on a service, right? That's the, at the upper end. So having a conversation at the leadership table or with your staff as, what are our risks? What do we reckon could happen here? And mm-hmm. a little tip for everybody is, if you actually ask people who've been working for you, they'll tell you how to commit fraud because they know. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Doesn't mean they're doing it. it Yeah, well, they know. Like anyone can work in any business and go, well, actually what I would do. And you say to someone, what would you do? Yeah. Right? So that's one thing around assessing and understanding your risks and trying to put some measures in place. And naturally, they've got to be fit for purpose. But for a business that's turning over, say, $10, $15 million or more, for a very cost-effective price point, they can come in and mitigate some of those risks and do an assessment. Um, the other one is putting in some basic controls, right? Mm-hmm. So things like not letting somebody in finance initiate payroll, make changes to payroll, and then do the payment, segregating those duties, right? Some of those key risks around suppliers mm-hmm. and payroll, I'd be looking if I was a business owner at going, right, have we got proper processes in place to set up a new supplier? What if the supplier contacts us and changes details? What process do we have in place for that? Are we ringing the supplier and checking and verifying that those bank account details are correct? There is a range of simple things you can do to try and combat that. Yeah. That is amazing. Um, yeah. And then look, you know, then we get onto things around tone from the top and culture and expectations and all those nice topics, which are, which are 100%, you know, really valuable. But, you know, if you're going to target just a small to medium business, there's a few practical things they can do there. So um, I've heard the term forensic accountant. What does a forensic accountant do in these circumstances? Uh, well, I'm not a forensic accountant, but they, hmm. they do a forensic review. So a very detailed review using accounting expertise to go hmm. through financial statements and financial transactions. They reconstruct accounts. Hmm. They look at the flow of monies in and out of accounts. They look at the way things are posted to GL or group ledger accounts and all those yeah. fancy things, which is a reason why I never became an accountant. Yes, and why you outsource um, that work. <laughs> that's right. And, uh, you know, God love accountants. Um, they're, they're a unique, special pe- um, breed they of people. Are. And my, my father-in-law is an accountant by trade, so I shouldn't um, speak too ill of them. But they've got really good financial literacy, right? So if you have a large fi- large-scale financial fraud, you need someone who can look into the ledger and the, the debits and credits and all that kind of stuff. Um, the other thing is forensic technology, mm, which is a big that. thing. Tell me that. So you've got forensic accounting, which is a real deep dive on those financial statement frauds we talked about. Um, but another massive thing that we do all the time and is becoming a lot more popular is uh, using forensic technology to uncover issues. So we grab big swaths of data out of your system and analyze structured and unstructured data. So emails, copies of phones, tablets, computers, hard drives, share drives, all that kind of stuff. It can all now be forensically examined. You can look at metadata of when documents were created. So in a fraud investigation, bread and butter for us is to look at 
when the email was sent, mm. who initiated the email, have any of the properties been changed, who else was involved, looking at the documents that were created. And I won't name any names, but mm. people do silly things such as I might be interviewing you and asking you for evidence of an invoice for a supplier fraud mm. and you'll then supply it to me the next day and go, here you go, Darren, here's what you asked for. As simple as looking at the properties of the document, I can see when you created it, on which mm. machine and in whose name. And yeah. if you're trying to tell me that's an invoice from created three years ago, that just doesn't stack up. So yeah. forensic technology is a big thing around examining data and getting access to the data systems in different businesses to be able to really profile that and help the investigation process. So would that increase your likelihood of potential success in, in prosecuting a, a crime like that? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. hugely valuable. I mean, mm. mobile phones and iPads and tablets and these days. Like, lawyers and um, police officers, yeah. Greenboat, they just date stamp everything. Yep, they do. And, you know, people are lazy. Yeah. The amount of people, if, isn't it that you say, Darren, the amount of people that get caught out having an affair, and it's because all the evidence is on here. <laughs> and their wives so I, go and check it, or their husbands. That's right. I've, I've got an 11 year old daughter who's in year seven and she got a phone this year. And, and I sat her down and I said, listen, you know, we're going to trust you, but just so you know, if you send and receive any kind of text messages and I grab your phone and you think you've gotten away with it because you've deleted it, just remember we can image <laughs> that phone and analyze it. And her face was like, really? I'm like, yes. <laughs> this is why well, I shouldn't have had a dad who was a policeman. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we get people who rock up to interviews, uh, you know, to answer allegations around fraud. Mm. And when we grab their phones or their hard drives or whatever, they've literally conducted Google searches the night before things like, how do I delete evidence or how do I create a fake invoice or whatever the case may be. So people aren't very smart when they're committing these things either. Yes. Common sense isn't very common. No. So we touched on it before. Um What's, what are the statistics around the, the, the reporting of these types of crimes to the police? And, and you said there's reasons why people don't, and I'd love to explore what they are. Yeah, so I think the reporting is probably a little higher than you probably expect, and I think it's depending on the jurisdiction, right? So in Australia, first world country, strong regulatory regime, pretty clear criminal codes. Um, it, it's, you know, the global stats by the ACV is about 59% of internal frauds are reported to police around the world. Um, I don't know if it's higher or lower here, but in my experience, um, I find that the biggest thing holding people back from reporting it, particularly with larger organisations, is the reputational impact. Mm. They're worried that by them admitting that they've had a fraud, A, it might shock investors or shareholders or whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. but they're worried about the knock-on reputation impact. Mm. My advice to them, and it's been the same for a long time now, and I think it's finally starting to cotton on to a few people, which is you're much better at getting off in front of this, telling people you've had an issue, most people understand that issues occur, yep. acknowledging that we've been good in picking it up and we're taking the matter seriously and we're reporting it to the police. And I think society is starting to expect that of people more and more. Mm. What they don't want to see is the fact that they learn five years later that you had a $4 million fraud, you decided to tell nobody, you never sacked the person and you didn't tell the cops. Well, that's the thing. It loses trust. And I, I try and sit there and I have conversations times with, you know, executives, CEOs, board members. And I say, the cost of your inaction is going to be far greater down the track because you're going to end up losing a board seat. You're going to end up losing your job as a CEO. Um, you're much better off taking control of the issue now and recognizing and admitting, yeah, we had something go on. That happens in business. We have a risk appetite statement. Mm -hmm. We've got controls in place. They're not perfect. And when things do go wrong, we detect it early and we take action. We learn from it, which is That's exactly right. what you want them to be doing. Yeah. Um, 
What about reference checks? What's your view on reference checks? Because I'm a big advocate, but I don't think people do them well. I think they take them on, you know, whatever, whoever's at the bottom of the CV, call Mary Smith, they call Mary Smith. What's your view on reference checks? I think they've got a role to play, but I don't think they're the last bastion of defence. No. Um, you know, it, when it comes to fraud and risk and all those good topics, you, you need a layered defence, right? So you, my view is, you know, the, the way that you post a job ad and talk about your culture is one input. The way you hold your recruitment process and really delve into the culture and values of the individual, then there's a part of doing reference checks, right? And, I mean, let's be honest, most of us are going to list someone on a reference check who's going to speak positively about us, okay? Um, sure, you get people doing it occasionally who haven't thought that through. Um, so, I, I, you know, unless you're asking really, really good questions, and, and that's another thing, I don't think people ask good questions. I'm constantly saying... No, and I'm constantly saying to people, you're asking the wrong question. Um, I think reference checks have a role to play, and I think they're a tick-the-box exercise sometimes, and I think employment screening and background checks also have a role to play. But as we know from this conversation, if you're not reporting people to the police who have committed fraud, then they're not going to rock up with a criminal record and therefore be detected on the next um, background screening check. Mm. So I think the guidance to people is do it, but recognise it's not a fail-safe option. What's your advice to, let's do the first, the victims, whether they be male or female, that feel that they have either been sexually harassed or worse in the workplace and have never spoken about it? And then what's your advice for an employer now in this environment where people are angry and people are more likely to maybe raise something that you weren't expecting? I think first and foremost, when it comes to people that have been a victim of a crime or any kind of harassment or other kind of issue. I mean, it's a hugely personal choice for that individual as to whether they report or not. I think, um, unfortunately, in the media, that gets lost. Um, I'm a bit of a critic when it comes to the media. I think they over-sensationalise things. They're highly politicised and they will drum up interest and, and push a narrative just to suit a political outcome. So that's my mm -hmm. first view. I think it's, a, it's an individual's choice as to whether they want to report something because... It's their mental well-being. It's it's their issue. Um, I think the guidance for them is to give them support and realise if you don't report it, that's your choice. But unfortunately, you you leave limited options for either the organisation or the police, if it's a criminal matter, to actually take any action. And unfortunately, there you expose more people to that risk moving forward. But once again, it's a personal choice. I would never sit back and criticise a male or a female for not reporting a serious sexual assault. I mean, it's their choice. They just have to understand, though, that when they don't report it, they're letting that person get away with it um, and potentially impacting other people. On the organisation side of things, I mean, I don't think it can get any clearer. I think community speaking loud and clear, mm. but I still, I still see examples of executives and others not getting it right, which is you've got an obligation when you learn of some kind of serious misconduct or criminal matter to look into it. Mm. Now, the tricky part comes into whether you've got a willing complainant or a willing victim. Mm. But there are still circumstances where if you're aware of the issue and we even without the employee participating in the process, that you can conduct an independent investigation. Mm. So I think each one needs need to be judged on its merit. But what absolutely mm. must happen is that you're able to say we have a zero tolerance on this. When yep. we're aware of an issue, we're prepared to listen. Mm -hmm. We're prepared to not to pass any judgment on, on the victim or the complainant and keep mm -hmm. an open mind. Equally, we're going to uphold procedural fairness and natural justice to the respondent. Mm. That gets lost in the media these days. You're guilty 
before um, being charged. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as an organization being out, I call it the daily telegraph test for those Mm -hmm. that live in Sydney, which is Mm -hmm. when this comes to light in three years time, can you as a CEO or a board equip yourselves adequately and saying, yes, you know what? It got reported to us. We looked into it. We took the right action, which was A, B, and C. We kept an open mind. We followed all these processes and we investigated. Or are you going to be left wanting where you said, yeah, it was in the too hard basket or I covered it up or I just didn't want to know about it or we didn't have enough information? Mm. No, that's really helpful. Thank you. Because I think a lot of people are grappling with that at the moment. And it's as we've seen, it's a highly emotive um, issue and people are struggling with that. Yeah, I mean, it, just to add, I've got some strong views on it and, you know, it can be boiled down to two two key areas. We just absolutely have to do a better job in mm. government and in, in sport and in society and in businesses to create safe speak-up cultures. Mm. 100%. There's just no other way. We've got to make it easy for people to speak up without fear of being judged, victimised, demonised mm. um, or fired. You know, it, fired, whatever the case may be. So. I think the legislation for whistleblowing a good start a couple of years ago. Mm. I think we've got a long way to go. And I think a lot of the issues you're seeing now are historical things coming out from a previous era. Fine. Uh, The next one is we've got to build better capability and processes in organisations to actually respond to issues. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, back to the whole thing about why people don't report frauds to the police because they're worried about their reputation. Sometimes executives and boards get a bit nervous and they are staring down the barrel of a right decision and they go left or right Mm. and do the wrong thing because they're scared of the outcome. They're better off just owning it and going, you know, I've got an obligation here both to the victim or the complainant, plus to the respondent, plus to our other employees and our culture and to shareholders, to regulators and the community to do the right thing. So the two things for me are getting people to speak up is coming from a cultural perspective, making it safe and easy and supporting that from the tone from the top. And then when something is reported, you've got to take action in the right way at an appropriate amount of, you know, um, Followed oversight. Due process. Followed your yeah. process. So I want to talk quickly about that speak up culture because you've mentioned that a couple of times and that ability to make it easy for people to make a complaint because most people um, often, you know, I've heard senior execs say, well, nobody told me. If I'd known, I would have done something about it. Yes. So let's explore the speak up culture. Why don't we speak up? What is the process that enables that? And what's the benefits for business if they do So I think in today's day and age, in today's climate, you've got to provide multiple pathways for people to speak up. I don't think it's good enough anymore just to say, oh, well, they know they can go to their manager or we've got an email address. Uh, I think, you you know, the, the analogy I use for clients all the time is you need a range of options and it's like a tradesman having multiple tools on his tool belt. Yeah. Right. And you then empower the individual to use the tool they need at the right time. And everybody's different. And every issue is different. So I'm in one scenario, I might be t- totally comfortable going to my manager and having a conversation. And that's the right approach. Another time, I'm perfectly within my rights to go and enact a grievance process under that policy. Other times, I might need to go to an externally managed hotline and be a whistleblower or, or just speak up that way. So I think the first thing we can do is actually recognise as organisations that we need to create multiple pathways for people to speak up. I see a lot of organisations, and this is a funny thing, right? Like I find this is just crazy. They don't want to spend 10, 20 grand or whatever it is on an externally managed hotline because of the cost. 
but they're willing to have people not speak up because they can't internally or they're willing to run afoul of whistleblower legislations and, and, and balls up the way they manage something or because they want to save a few bucks and create an extra pathway for people to speak up. I just find it crazy. But then they turn around and talk about their tone from the top and their culture, which are just empty words because they're not actually putting anything in place to support it. Mm. So I think there's that, you know, multiple pathways is one thing. And I talk, touched on it before. You've then got to build capability, right? Yeah. So you've got to train people in the organization to what to look for and what to expect from a standards and a behavior perspective. So we go to fraud um, and we haven't touched on this is what are the common red flags that you should look out for in other people's behavior? Let's talk yeah. about that. Cause that's one of my questions. Yeah. So you need to empower people and build capability to go, this is what fraud is, or this is what bullying is, or this is what sexual harassment is. And if you see that, these are some of the signs. And when you see it, this is what you do. And it sounds really basic when I say it, but a lot of organizations, unless it's the top end of town, aren't doing this. So we we do we call it appropriate workplace behavior training. And we're always mm-hmm. banging on to our clients. You need to do this because it sets the tone, talks about code of conduct, talks about sexual harassment, talks about what bullying is, what it isn't. And and obviously that last round around, you know, what is performance management, what isn't it, and then, you know, what to do if you've got a problem. But it should be standard. Every business should be doing that at least once a year to provide that framework for people to get some help. Yeah, I mean, look, we I won't mention the client, but we've got a large multinational client that does. Every two years, they call us and say it's time to roll out the fraud awareness training again. And they're serious about it, right? And they're a really good organization. They're a very well-known brand and they're fair income. That's my little term about yep. their culture. And when those senior managers and directors and leaders come to it and like, we, you know, we will do 20 sessions and touch 400 of their senior people, mm-hmm. right? They're valuable three-hour sessions where we're in there re-educating what the latest trends are around fraud, like the stuff I shared with you today, how it's changed mm-hmm. the last couple of years since we last saw you. And we do some, you know, case studies and whatever else and role plays. But the biggest value out of that is apart from just building their knowledge, they start talking to each other in those mm-hmm. sessions and they start sharing stories and you'd be amazed what comes out. Oh, wow, that behavior is similar to what we saw over here. And, and from an organizational point of view, we share those insights back to the to the people we're working with and they get so many nuggets of gold out of it. So that's when it's done really well, right? Other end of the scale, um, you know, we we respond to issues for organizations repeatedly. And I said, hey, why don't we do some training on this? No, no, we don't want to spend any money on it. But I'm like, you've just spent $80,000 doing an investigation and you don't want to spend ten grand for a training session or whatever the, the money yeah. is. Prevention is always better than cure, mm. always better than cure. So does, an ob- does a business have an obligation to report to police? Maybe with APRA, they may, with the financial service. So, you know, I think big disclaimer is I'm not a lawyer, but based no. on my experience in my career, um, different states have different obligations when it comes to the criminal code. Right. I can speak fairly confidently when it comes to New South Wales mm. um, that there's a positive reporting obligation when it comes to a serious indictable offence. Mm. Okay, I don't believe that exists in Victoria, but I could be wrong. Yeah. So I think the best advice is you've got to check with a lawyer or your internal yeah. general counsel and find out what are our organisation's responsibilities to report serious indictable offences to the police. Mm. Okay. That's the first thing. And then separate to that, you've got the regulatory regime. So depending on your industry, whether you're governed by ASIC as a proprietary limited, um, APRA, if you're in financial services, mm. you, you may have 
a, a range of reporting obligations around a range of conduct issues. So these days you've got whistleblowing, modern slavery, um, you know, workplace health and safety, and the list goes on and on. So I think you've got to be well informed as to the area you're operating in and understand what those obligations are rather than putting your head in the sand. You know, I've just done my Australian company director's course and it occurs to me every board should be meeting with you to understand what their obligations are because risk is such a major part of it. And I just think, to your point, is it's changing all the time and people need to be across it. Yeah, well, thanks for the kind words. Um, appreciate it. And you're right, though, it's a complex topic that's changing all the time and, and, and it requires more than just me. It requires a multiple number of specialists to provide that board with advice right so my sweet spot might be whistleblowing fraud investigations mm. but it's not modern slavery for example right mm. um and, and if you're a logistics company there's the chain of responsibility and heavy vehicles right i'm not an expert at that but there are a range of risks now and boards need mm. to be looking at not only have we assessed what that risk is and have we got a risk appetite how are we checking the controls mm. and how are we meeting our obligations around compliance with those regulations or those laws is there anything else you think we you'd like to leave our listeners with or that we should have covered that we haven't? I think I've touched on it before, but my big advice is if you're not sure of what you should be doing or you're in doubt, ask somebody. Like, don't put your head in the sand and you might just be surprised. There could be a simple solution that's not as expensive as you think uh, that can really help you out of a jam. That's if you've got an issue to actually deal with. Um, but more importantly, back to your earlier comment around prevention, I mean, Prevention is better than the cure, 100%, but it's also better than your best response. Mm. So it doesn't matter how good your crisis response is and how good it is you are cleaning stuff up, prevention is so much more effective. Yeah, um, so, you know, it's cheaper, right? Um, so my big thing to people is if you're in doubt, call someone and ask for some help. Um, and particularly for small to medium businesses, like if you're if you're turning over, you know, let's say two to five million dollars and you're still considered a small business, which you are, hmm. there are some real, you know, cost-effective practical things you can do to strengthen your internal controls hmm. and um, you know, build capability in your team to limit the um, option of something like a $1.2 million payroll fraud happening. If you're above $10 million, I mean it's a non-negotiable that you should be getting help from people. I mean, we deal with clients in that sort of what I call large private company space. Mm. And they're a really good sweet spot for us because they might be turning over a hundred million dollars, but invariably they've got low levels of capability in some of these risk and um, compliance and governance spaces. And, you know, they, they're crying out for help in those areas because they're growing quickly. They're turning over a hundred million. They might have 300 employees and whatever else, but they don't have dedicated risk teams. They don't have dedicated fraud investigators. Um, so my, my advice is you've got to just reach out and ask some questions to people. And and let's be really honest, and I'm old enough to know this, these roles didn't even really exist 20, 30 years ago. You know, the chief risk officer is only a fairly new sort of C-suite role, as I understand it. Yeah, that's true. Um, but, you know, even coming back to HR, I mean, I've got a view on this and I could be wrong. I'd be interested in your thoughts. I mm. think that the the poor HR manager these days is becoming the quasi chief risk mm -hmm. officer for smaller organisations. So, yeah. you know, when I look at the, our portfolio clients that fit that sort of, they got more than 70 or 80 employees, that's probably the threshold where you start getting one or two internal HR people. Is that right? It's, you're absolutely right. Normally the statistic is 57. They put on a very junior HR board, which isn't a lot of good to them. Um, so yep. you're right. It's that high level, especially if they're growing fast, they might have one or two, but they generally don't have many the breadth of experience. experience. Mm. 
So let's go to now, you know, you've got three or 400 employees and you might have a HR manager and maybe a HR support officer, right? He or she is getting lumped with all the COVID return to work stuff. They're getting lumped with all their fair work, uh, payment of wages and compliance, workplace health and safety. And then they're getting told, oh, can you create a whistleblower policy? Mm. Oh, can you respond to a fraud investigation? Hey, we just had a business email compromise. Can you sort that out? So, you know, we've got quite a few HR managers that fit that bill where I look at them and think, how do you survive? Like, how are you Mm. getting by? The the HR role, I think, is under a lot of pressure to deliver. Especially now. Yeah, and people don't want to hire any more resources because of COVID. And I, I can see a lot of HR people having a lot of stress on their plate around modern slavery, whistleblowing, chain of responsibility, fair work ombudsman yep. and those kind of obligations, return to work around COVID. Yep, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. All right, my last question for you today, Darren, is what makes a great boss for you in your mind? And feel free to name someone. We're putting that out there with some of our people who have, I think they're unsung heroes. And what managers, what can managers do in particular to improve themselves around this area of fraud? Uh, let me tackle the second one first. So I think, you know, the areas of fraud, I mean, most people like crime and they like they have an active interest in it, right? So you should probably leverage that and think, I need to know a bit more about fraud and have a chat with someone, whether it's me, you, whoever, um, and just upskill yourself around what are those fraud risks. Um, and like I said, for, for not a lot of investment of time or potentially money, you can actually do a lot of work to upskill your team on what to look out for. So my big advice is get some training happening. People love going to face-to-face training these days because if you think about COVID, right, like we've been working remotely for a year. Um, prior to that, we were doing LMS systems for the last mm-hmm. 10 years and we've forgotten how to deal with people. You bring people together, they want to actually interact with each other. We're actually seeing a lot of people wanting to do hybrid sessions where mm-hmm. we're in their office doing it for those that are in a certain location like Sydney or Melbourne and then the others are remotely dialing in. So good dynamic. Yeah. Um Back to what makes a good boss. I mean, there's so many factors, right? If I think about the good bosses I've had during my life, um, I think they're people who give you a fair go and they treat you with respect, but they also hold you accountable. Hmm. Like, you know, if you're a really uh, weak boss where you just want to be friends with everybody or you don't have any high standards, I think that's a really bad outcome for a lot of teams. And you see weak leadership lead down to bad outcomes around behavior and other things. On the other side, you don't want to be complete hard ass all the time. Mm-hmm. I've had some I've had some other bosses who, you know, their ego was bigger than the building. Yeah. They thought they operated by power and secrecy and, you know, they're just idiots, to be honest, in terms of how they carry on and no one respects them. That good balance of, you know, good culture, I'm focused on doing the right thing, I'm going to hold you accountable if you screw up, but I'm also going to support you. I mean, one of my bosses who was, who's now a friend, he used to just say simple things like, why are you doing that? And I'll be taking a lot of stress and a lot of pressure unnecessarily. He goes, you don't need to be doing that and just being a good regulator for me in terms of what I'm doing. And other times I'd hand him a piece of work and he'd say, is that your best work? (laughs) And I'd like, and if I hesitate, he goes, take it back. (laughs) Just little things like that around trying to grow you in terms of, you know, your abilities and whatnot. But um, I want to quote someone and I will give her a shout out. There's a lady I know who I'm friends with called Rhonda Brighton Hall. I don't know if you've heard of her. No. So she was a senior HR person at Commonwealth Bank. She now runs her own business called Making Work Absolutely Human. Uh, She's very well known. Yep. Uh, I know her quite well and we do a bit of work together occasionally. And I like her saying, which is, you know, just be a good human, like just be a good person. Like don't be a dick. She doesn't say that. I say that, but don't (laughs) be a dick. Like it doesn't take a lot just to be a good human and realize that work is only one part of our lives. 
Yeah, brilliant. What a great way to finish. It has been an absolute pleasure, Darren. Uh, I know for some probably a scary conversation um, that we've shared today, but if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to contact you? So I'd say go to our website, which is coreintegrity.com.au and just reach out to us. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. It's very easy to find me on LinkedIn. Send me a direct message. And, you know, we really genuinely like to help people do the right thing. And we, you know, we walk the talk and we also do a lot of stuff for free for people. I'm happy. I've got a personal mission, which is I want to be known as someone who can be called upon to help people out in a time of crisis. And I don't have to monetize that all the time. So they can ring me, ask me a question, and I'll happily answer it. If I'm not the right person, I'll connect them to somebody else. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Thank you for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us this afternoon. That's been brilliant. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. It's been a great chat. It has been great. I've really enjoyed it. And if you've enjoyed this interview, you're also going to enjoy an interview that we've done with Esther on how to hire the best you can afford and how to avoid hiring someone who might steal from you, which we've spoken about at length with Darren today. (laughs) Um, Thanks for listening and remember to subscribe or better still tell your friends and family about the Employees Matter podcast. I'm Natasha Hawker and remember your employees really do matter. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode of Employees Matter podcast with Natasha Hawker. For episode notes and other resources, please visit employeematters.com.au forward slash podcast. While you're there, you might like to subscribe for future episodes so you can continue to thrive during the COVID-19 crisis. Please be sure to share this and other episodes with your friends, team and business network. This podcast was proudly brought to you by Ring Central.